You're listening to KTOO News Juno. The following is a broadcast of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event. The seven personal stories you're about to hear were told on October 10th at the Northern Light United Church. The theme for the evening was After the Storm. Live music by Julie Copens. Am I bleeding? Am I bleeding from the storm? To shine a light into the wreckage so far away, away. Cause I'm still breathing. Cause I'm still breathing on my own. My head's above the rain and roses making my way, my way. Cause I'm still breathing. Cause I'm still breathing on my own. My head's above the rain and roses making my way. I'm Rich Moniak. I'm one of the storyboard members. Tonight's the second show of our seventh season, and to date we've raised over $81,000 for nonprofits in Juneau. Trail Mix will be getting the donations. They'll be getting it for the next four shows, this show and the next three. With that, let's uh, bring Sarah and uh, Melissa up on the stage for tonight's show. It was a dark and stormy night. When we picked the theme, it's actually pretty nice today. The drill is seven speakers, seven minutes, seven dollars. How are you as the speaker gonna know that you're getting close to seven minutes, Melissa? We're gonna make a little sound like this. That's the five minute warning. And if you make it to seven. I probably didn't need the extra. (laughs) Probably didn't need the microphone. We always hope that's not exactly at the crux of the story and freak the audience out. But with that, our first speaker this evening is my dear friend, Captain Russell. Russell has a lifetime as a blue water sailor, a commercial fisherman, and a ship's captain. Russell Sandstrom's seen his share of stormy seas and foul weather. He departed Juneau in 1982 aboard his 34... 34-foot sailboat, the Balalaika, on a four-year cruise to the Caribbean. On the 10-day ocean passage between Seattle and San Francisco, he and his two crew survived a tale of two storms. Russell, please join us. The night is as black as ebony. My two crew members, Dion and Jim, and myself are completely waterlogged. Except this time it's because we've been soaking for hours in a hot tub at a friend's house tucked deep in the redwood forests of Marin County, California. He lives here with his three big dogs. We've polished off several bottles of wine already as we relive the events of the last four days. Thankful to be alive, feeling relatively unscathed, and uh, also thankful for the seaworthiness of our little boat. The stillness surrounds us like a warm embrace. This is the perfect remedy for us. When all of a sudden there's a loud crash, the dogs are barking, glass goes spraying over us as a giant Doberman comes leaping through the window, blood streaming from its head, jumps over the hot tub, across the deck, and into the darkness. We're left absolutely breathless. Our host, meanwhile, seems rather calm and simply says, Damn, that's the third time that she's done that now. (laughs) 
Well, that was storm number two just came through. Captain's Log, September 9, 1982. We're six days out of Cape Flattery, Washington, 100 miles offshore. It's been really slow going, variable winds, and long calm stretches. The forecast is calling for exactly the same because we're only halfway of our 750 miles to San Francisco so far. We've been becalmed all morning. <clears throat> And the only movement is a long, greasy swell rolling in from the northwest. My friend Jim uh, is a novice sailor, and this is the first time he's uh, made an ocean passage. So he, before we left, he started dosing himself with those transderm skin patches. About noon that day, <clears throat> we find ourselves amidst one of the most spectacular sights I've ever encountered at sea. A pod, no, really more like a herd of pods of Pacific white-sided dolphins, thousands and thousands of them, swimming, jumping all over the place, all as far as we can see to the horizon. They're generally moving from west to east. It's two hours before the last of them finally disappear over the eastern horizon. 6 p.m., a cat's paw of breeze ripples the water, so we get our sails back up again and we're underway. By 10 p.m., the wind's blowing 25 knots, the seas are eight feet in building. The balalaika is galloping with the bits in her teeth now. Captain's log, 3 a.m. It's blowing a full gale now, 35 to 40 knots. We've reached the mainsail and jibsail. <clears throat> We're surfing down at 10 knots down the face of the waves, which presents a danger of broaching if the helmsman isn't careful how they steer. By dawn, the winds are storm force, 50 knots, gusting to 65. The seas are over 25 feet. We're running under bare poles now and still making three knots. The uh, big gusts blow the tops right off of the waves as they go roaring past us like a roaring freight train. Every so often, a wave breaks under over the boat and drenches the helmsman in the cockpit. We're still hurling too fast down the face of the wave, so we decide to string out 400 feet of anchor line off the stern. This acts like an emergency brake. It keeps us pointed downwind. It makes our ride a lot safer. Below decks, the roller coaster ride makes it impossible to cook and even tosses you out of your bunk. Our worries heighten when we hear the mayday stress. A faint call on the radio from a sailboat apparently has been dismasted and can't get their engine started. We pray that they are okay. Night watch is the worst. The deafening sound of the wind. All you can see are the breaking, foamy white wave tops as they pass by you. It reminds me of an Alaskan snow-capped mountain range, except they're all going up and down. We move like zombies. It's even a chore to suit up in your rain gear. For several days now, my friend Jim had been complaining that his eyes, his visions was blurry and he was feeling confused. We chalked it up to exhaustion and he said, well, at least he wasn't getting seasick. Captain's log, it's now our third night in the storm. The seas are as high as our masthead, some 35 feet. Jim stumbles out for his watch and <clears throat> settles in in the cockpit opposite of me. He doesn't say a thing. I can just see, bake out his face from the compass light. 
and I see an eerie blank expression on his face. Eventually, he turns to me, he looks at me, and he says, I know who you are, but I can't remember your name. I was like, my first thought was, oh my God, my friend has flipped out, and it's my fault. <clears throat> I talked to him for a while. He says he's still feeling very confused, and his eyes bother him, so we get him back down below. Later on, Dion found out that he'd been double or triple dosing himself on those transderm patches, so she had had him take those off immediately. <laughs> September 12th, Captain's Log. By early morning, the winds seemed to be easing up a bit. Our dead reckoning puts us about 60 miles west of San Francisco. By mid-morning, the winds have subsided to 30 knots, so we put the storm sails back up and get underway, charging eastward. <clears throat> it's great to be sailing again because the motion is a lot better. Um, we can actually make some hot coffee and get something hot to eat. We're, uh, Jim seems well alert and recovered by now, and we're, our spirits have lifted as we know that we're headed towards safe harbor. Late, af uh, late afternoon, we sail under the Golden Gate Bridge and by 9 p.m. we can drop our anchor off Sausalito Harbor. Everyone collapses into their bunks. That morning as we tidied up, <clears throat> uh, we saw our Canadian friends, uh, Charlie and Jean, coming in on their sailboat, and they had been coming down the coast at the same time as us. So they stopped by, we said we'd meet up later on, <clears throat> and uh, which we did. We all stumbled up to the uh, Sausalito's famous no-name bar uh, for drinks and swapped stories about the big storm. Shortly, a uh, while later, Dion's friend from Marin County came down to meet up with us. His invitation to go spend a peaceful night at his house at his cabin out in the woods seemed too good to turn down. Little did we know another storm was brewing out in the redwoods. Thank you. Our next speakers. So this is rare. We actually kind of have eight speakers, but they're really like one. So just think of them as one person right now. Um, so Richard Steele and Luann McVeigh are retired teachers. In 2003, they moved to Thailand with their two daughters, where they taught in an international school. In December of 2004, the four of them went to the island of Phuket for vacation with Luann's parents, sister Jeannie McCauley, and her son Liam. They stayed in a hotel on top of a hill. On our last day in Phuket, our family got together and we had breakfast and it was really lovely. And my sister asked, did anyone else feel that earthquake this morning? Oh, we thought that was really funny because as far as we know, there were no earthquakes in Thailand. So we all went back to our rooms and I tried to urge everyone to quickly get packed so we could go back down to the beach, the last picture, a last swim down at the beach, but they all collapsed in front of the television set. So I packed, I got my stuff all ready, and then I walked down to the village to do a little last minute shopping. It was a beautiful day. Blue sky, the shops were just opening, 
and I walked into one, but no sooner had I walked into the shop than a big commotion took place outside. There were motorcycles zooming up and down the streets. Whistles were blowing. People were yelling. And the two ladies in the shop hustled me out the door and said, go back to your hotel. I couldn't figure out what it was, but I found a couple of tourists on the street. And they said, water's coming up on the island. We don't know what it is. Tsunami, I thought to myself. And I started running up that jungle trail toward our hotel. I might not ever see my family again. We could die in this. I, I got up to the top of the hill where the trail met a road, and up the road was streaming, staggering people, people whose faces were ashen. They had blood streaming down them, mud plastering their hair, and all of them had this look on their face like nothing. They didn't say a word. I ran past them. I got to the hotel. I, f I walked into one of the rooms and my dad was there. He was pacing up and down. I asked him where everyone else was and he said, well, your mom is downstairs in the courtyard. She's taking care of someone who was hurt, but I don't know where anyone else is. So I picked up my cell phone and I tried calling Richard and I tried calling our girls and I couldn't get through. All the lines were busy. Richard, tell them what happened. Where were you? Well, a commotion outside the hotel drew me away from the TV, and I went out on the balcony, and I looked down the hill, and where the road led in from the beach, there were all these rapids going inland, and people standing above the water looking. I thought, i got to see what this is. I have no idea. So I ran down the hill. My daughter Lydia followed me, and when I got to the bottom, I squeezed through the little crowd of people, and they were watching a lady drowning. I couldn't believe it. Her hands were above the water, and I, nobody did a thing. I couldn't believe it. So I just went in the water, and I grabbed her. The wave had knocked her clothes off. And when her head came above the water, she gasped like, <sighs> and then two Thai people came at full bore, and they came into the water and helped me drag her to the side. And then the, the motorcycle started zooming, and the, the whistles were going off. And the next wave was on the way, and the people dragged her up the hill. I sent Lydia back to the hotel, and then we got to high ground. After that wave subsided, a Swedish man and I went downstream, and we went down towards the beach to look in shops for people. We were lifting furniture and all kinds of debris, looking for people, and behind the building was a man stuck in muck up to his waist on the other side of all this stuff being washed back out to sea. There were propane tanks hissing and refrigerators tumbling and cars, and I didn't want to dare cross that stream of water. So what I did was I looked for a cord, and I found a piece of curtain cord and threw it, but I couldn't reach him. And then people from Club Med were coming with a fire hose to extend it to him. And just then the motorcycles went off, and the whistle started blowing, and the next wave was coming, and I headed for high ground. A few hours later, our whole family was in one of the hotel rooms where we'd stayed, and we were all gathered around the television set looking for signs of the earthquake and the subsequent tsunami. But at that time, there wasn't much showing up on the, on the TV networks. So Richard and I decided that we would walk down to the beach to see what was happening down there. And we walked down the hill, and as we were going down, we could see that the sewage plant at the bottom of the hill had been smashed and ruined, and it was standing there in a pool of murky brown water, sewage everywhere. When we got to the beach, there were shoes everywhere, different colors, different sizes, 
but there were no people down there. I just felt bereft. I couldn't help but wonder, where were all those people who had worn those shoes? Richard, how did you feel at the end of the day? It was like it had been a dream because it was a beautiful morning, a bright day. It was no clouds in the sky, and suddenly it was all misery and death. After I had been down there at the beach, I realized how reckless I had been because I went back down to between the waves to see what this looked like, and I saw the water sloshing above the high tide back and forth like in a bathtub. I knew, though, that I could be safe if I climbed a tree because I saw scuba divers up in the trees. They were hanging onto the branches, and I yelled to them and talked to them. So I plotted a way up into a tree if I needed to, if another wave came. And I really wanted to see it. And, you know, from up there, I was able to look and see people under blue tarps, and the Thai army had already arrived, and they stood at attention. They seemed like magnificent giants standing there at attention next to the bodies under the tarps. We returned to Phuket six months later to find the tourist areas mostly rebuilt. Very few tourists were there. Um, uh, we did learn that there had been actually an earthquake and a, and a huge tsunami that had smashed into the island of Phuket and taken a, a quarter of a million people across Asia. Um, the Thai people told us, well, we learned first that um, many of the people who died in the tsunami were actually foreigners because the Thai people had run up the hills when at the first sight of the water receding. But the European visitors, mostly European, went out on to the beaches to find out what was happening with all those fish flipping around in the corals. They were the first to be swept away when those huge waves came crashing into the island. So the Thai people told us, stay away from the beach at night. The Farang ghosts are down there, and they're still calling for help. I had a really hard time sleeping when we returned to Phuket. Every single night, I visualized, I imagined them down there, those ghostly voices calling from the beach as the tide pulled back the sea once more. Our next speaker is Leslie Gartman. When asked to characterize their mother, Leslie's adult son said, she's out of control. Leslie feels like that says it all. Last year, I, I filled out a profile an online dating profile. Don't judge. <laughs> and one of the questions they ask you is, would you rather your travel was good or interesting? I've always said that the best travel stories are the ones where everything goes wrong. And if you're lucky, your life is one big travel story. So of course, I chose interesting. Storms, real and metaphorical, make our lives interesting after the storm is when we figure out who we really are. When I filled out this profile, I imagined myself falling madly in love and riding off into the sunset with my true love. Little did I know that my true love would turn out to be a nine and a half foot tall stand-up paddleboard, <laughs> who I call Javier. <laughs> Javier doesn't say much. But he's always there, and he always makes me feel better, no matter how bad my day was. I came across this great love 
purely by accident. I've been to Hawaii where, you know, we tried stand-up paddling because that's what the tourists do. It was so fun. It was beautiful out on the water. It was great exercise. I had a blast. When I came home, I told my friend Tiffany about this, and she said, you know, they have stand-up paddle boards at Costco. <laughs> I drove straight to Costco. I embraced Javier right off the shelf, and I took him home with me. It was wonderful. Our first date, our first time out on the water, I discovered that it's a little bit different falling off the water in Alaska than it was in Hawaii. That water was so cold. But it really helped me focus on developing some balance and staying on the board. When I first started, I dressed the same way I did in Hawaii. Yeah with a one-piece swimsuit and a PFD and some flip-flops. I stuck with the swimsuit partly because you stay really warm out on the water. It's really good exercise. You're working hard. The neighbors along the beach would come out on their decks and they'd be all bundled up and shivering and staring at me. Are you out of your mind? And invariably, somebody would say, aren't you cold? No. I took great delight in their concern, their consternation, their bewilderment, their befuddlement, their absolute conviction that I was a little nuts. It made stand-up paddling just a little more fun. <laughs> Once I got my sea legs, my friend Lacey told me to watch out for the wind on the channel, that it can be unpredictable and strong. Pshaw, I said. I am Xena, warrior princess on a paddleboard. Choppy waters, why it's good exercise. It's raining too. Behold the mist in Juno. It's magical. But that wind, the wind I did not yet understand. <laughs> the wind I didn't understand. But I came to. One day, I was out, and the conditions were miserable. They were wretched. The waves were coming at me three different directions. It was freezing cold, but I had a great time. I was exhilarated. I went for just 30 minutes, because that was enough of a workout. So I doubled back, and that's when I faced the headwind. In a strong headwind, I'll drop to my knees, or even to a seated position, to get out of the wind a little bit and create less drag. And that's usually enough just paddling hard to get out of it. But this time, I got within seven houses along the beach, just seven houses, and I could not move forward. The wind was like a brick wall. I was stuck. So I finally came ashore, and I, I was frustrated. I felt like I'd failed, but I'll just try another day. It turns out, though, that if you pick up a board that is nine and a half feet tall and almost three feet wide, if you pick it up out of the water, it makes an excellent one-person sail. <laughs> I've 
grabbed it under my arm with my paddle under the other, and I was getting flipped around. I didn't know what to do, so I dropped down to the ground, and I, I tried to think, how was I going to get my board home? I prayed that a, a neighbor would see that I was struggling and would come to my rescue. But alas, no one rescues Xena warrior princess on a paddleboard. So I observed there were a few seconds between each gust, and I decided I was just going to make an incremental break for it. So I would feel the wind start to die down. I grabbed this now giant board under my arm, my paddle under the other. I'd jump up. I'd stumble a few feet in these stupid flip-flops, and then I'd fall back down. It took forever to get home. But you know what? It was just what I needed. After that fight, that bout with the wind, I lost my angst, my pain, my confusion, my normal human condition. And I was again joyful and happy and in love with Javier. <laughs> Javier allows me to feel connected to the water in a very spiritual way. And when I'm out there, any insurmountable problems or nagging questions or or painful memories, they come up and they dissipate and disappear. I found out later that a neighbor had seen me and did think I was nuts, and not just for paddling in that weather, but because the whole time I'm popping up, I'm running forward, I'm falling down. The whole time that's happening, I was laughing my head off. Because all I could think was, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger. And I am strong as hell. <laughs> Javier has brought me through storms of frigid waters and fierce winds and unpredictable wildlife. That's another story. But he has made my life so much more interesting and he has taught me that I am so much more than I ever thought possible. Thank you. Our next speaker is Jennifer Seeley. Jennifer moved to Juneau this past January for a short internship at the Mendenhall Glacier. Almost a year later, she's still here, having helped play host to over half a million people that arrived by a floating city. Having grown up in Seattle, she was ready to return to the mountains and evergreens after getting a bachelor's in anthropology from a small liberal arts school in central Ohio. Where are the bears? Why is the ice blue? How long is the 15-minute movie? How long does it take to get to the waterfall? Why is the glacier so dirty? Why is the ice blue? I am, of course, not speaking of any meteorological event, but a storm, nevertheless. A mid-season Monday afternoon at the Mendenhall Glacier, with which many of you are more familiar with than I. The cruise ship industry has ballooned over the past several decades, and so here they come by the hundreds of thousands, cramming into our visitor center in order to look at this big, gorgeous, hunk of ice. But why? 
this is what bothered me at the beginning of the season. Why are they here? What, what meaning do they hope to find in this glacier? What story do they expect to have told to them? Well, as park rangers, and as a first season park ranger myself with extra tufts so new they practically squeaked when I walked, it was my job, it's our job, to tell the story of the glacier and to give meaning to people through their experience here. And so for me, the foremost story of the Mendenhall Glacier, the one that stood out to me most when I moved here in the winter, was the story of how by day, by month, by year, it's getting smaller and smaller because of climate change. And so in the beginning of the season for training, I agonized over how to tell this story to the visitors because it's so political and there's so much chemistry involved. And so I wondered, should I, I talked to the fellow more experienced ranger, should I zoom past the science and just talk about how it's affecting this gorgeous glacier in front of us? Or should I zoom past that and just try to talk about solutions? We use a lot of hydropower in Juneau. If you're from uh, Arizona, you could use a lot of solar panels. But I didn't want to offend people. I didn't want to make people feel needlessly guilty. So I had a lot of interesting conversations throughout the summer. And I heard a lot of reasons for why climate change is not our fault. And so why none of you have to do anything about it. None of us have to do anything about it. But there is one conversation that stands out in my memory. I had just given a spiel on photo point. Someone probably asked me why the ice was blue. And so I used that as an excuse to dive into how the glacier got there and why it's getting smaller. And one gentleman was looking at me intently as I spoke. He wore a worn Patagonia fleece and some brown work pants. And he came up to me after my talk to say that he'd appreciated it. And so we chatted for a few minutes before he came out with it directly. I don't think that humans affect climate change, he said. This was my chance. If I could remember my training, that he will remember how I made him feel much more than he will remember what I said. I could maybe plant a seed. And so I gave him my disclaimers. Now you're right, the temperature of our Earth's atmosphere has fluctuated dramatically throughout the history of the Earth. And as a park ranger, I'm a generalist. I'm not an expert, so I can only tell you what I know. And accepting that, he let me dive into my spiel about how in a world without us scenario, these ancient compressed carbon, these fossil fuels would be miles beneath our feet, but now we've extracted them so that I can drive to work in the morning, which I love. And now these energetic molecules are vibrating above our heads, keeping as much of the sun's heat from escaping as, I, as it used to. And so this line of thought brought him onto the subject of the ozone layer, which to me is a little bit of a red herring, but we talked about it. Uh, to him, Rachel Carson was a liar when she wrote Silent Spring, but we both got past that. <laughs> And I threw in another line about how it's normal for the Earth's atmosphere, for the temperature to increase, but it's unusual for it to happen so quickly. And we're moving towards temperatures that I've never experienced, that humans have never experienced as a species. And so this brought him onto the subject of volcanoes and how volcanoes are to blame for why the Earth's atmosphere is increasing. Of course. So I gave him my line from a fellow park ranger from a science paper she'd found about how, how the number of how much more carbon dioxide humans are emitting than when that one time that Mount St. Helens erupted in 1980. Many of you remember it, I don't. And, <laughs> and we continued to chat. And I made the strategic error of bringing up China because I assumed that he would, most of them do. And, uh, 
I brought up uh, their policies to encourage electric cars, and he eagerly dismissed them as hypocrites. But by this time, we were at the parking lot, because I had walked with him from one station to another. And we, his bus was idling. He probably had to get back to his cruise ship. And so we were just chatting away a little more, because we had, we had maintained a respectful dialogue throughout. And he said, in passing about some contract work that he'd done for a guy who wanted to get to net zero emissions in his house. He was, I thought this was kind of silly, but he did mention that his own home is on 40% solar energy. And I stopped, and I shook his hand, and I said, thank you, sir, because I think that, I think that what you're doing makes a difference for this glacier. So we chatted a little bit more, and then he got up his bus, went back to the cruise ship and sailed away. And I flatter myself that we both walked away from that conversation a little surprised. Uh, him, maybe because someone that he might have pegged as an insufficiently closeted, tree-hugging hippie environmentalist, was willing to admit that she could be wrong and willing to focus on the facts. And me, amazed that this man who denied any you know, human influence on climate change undeniably has a smaller carbon footprint than I do. So I read the newspaper most mornings and I always read the articles about international climate policy and states regulating greenhouse gases because I'm that kind of nerd. And so sometimes it feels like we're just shouting past each other and that we've decided it's not worth it to respectfully disagree, let alone have a conversation. But I think back on the conversations like that one, and I had more like that this past summer, and I think it's still possible, and it's still worth it. You're listening to a recording of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event on KTOO News Juno. These stories were recorded October 10th at the Northern Light United Church. The theme for the evening was After the Storm. Curious? Visit mudrooms.org. I'm like a child looking off on the horizon. I'm like an... Am I bleeding? Am I bleeding from the storm? To shine a light into the wreckage so far away, away. Cause I'm still breathing. Cause I'm still like a junkie tying off for the last time. I'm like a loser that's betting on his last dime. Oh, I'm still alive. I'm like a son that was raised without a father. I'm like a mother barely keeping it together. Oh, I'm still alive. Am I bleeding? Am I bleeding from the storm? Just shine a light into the wreckage So far away, away Cause I'm still breathing Cause I'm still breathing on my own My head's above the rain and roses Making my way, my way Cause I'm still breathing Cause I'm still breathing
Jenny McBride. Jenny is originally from the Chicago area. Her first go-round at Life in Juno was in the late 1980s when she worked at the then brand new Juno Pioneers Home. In 1990, she returned to Illinois, and in, though she enjoyed all that Chicago had to offer for 23 more years, she always pined for Juno. She finally returned to Alaska in 2014 and feels very lucky to be back here where even rainy days are beautiful. Jenny, please join us. All right, it was Friday, July 23rd, 2010. But we were living outside of Chicago. It was a stormy night, but we weren't worried. There were no flood warnings, no tornado warnings. And in the Midwest, summer thunderstorms are welcome because they bring cool weather, a break from the terrible heat. My husband Marlon and I were sitting in our screen room enjoying the fresh air. We had a big garden and Marlon kept saying, this rain's gonna be great for the tomatoes. The only one who wasn't enjoying the storm was my cat, Cassie. She was really upset by the thunder. And it, it was very loud and very frequent. And I kept telling her, it's okay, it's just rain. But she knew better. And so that night, um, in good weather, Cassie and I usually slept on a cot in the screen room, and she wouldn't sleep out there. So we slept in the room adjacent to the screen room. And I woke up about 5.30 the next morning, because Cassie was gone. She sleeps nestled against me, and she gets up, I wake up. And uh, I, the, it, the thunder had stopped. It was still raining a little. I, I looked in the screen room. I didn't see Cassie. So I decided to check out the living room. And as I stepped down into the laundry room, my foot hit water. And I stepped back up into the living room, and it was dry, but I could see out the front window that our yard was badly flooded. We lived across the street from a retention pond, and the pond was doing its job of keeping the water off the nearby highway, but it was only successful because it was funneling that water into our yards and homes. So I went to wake up Marlon, who was sleeping in the bedroom with our other cat, Nikolai, and I told him, I've never seen so much water in the front yard. And he said, I'm really tired. <laughs> I said, I know it's 5.30, but I think we've got a problem. So he decided, okay, he's gonna get up and move the car over to Wally's driveway, just in case. Wally was a neighbor who lived between us and the highway, so he had some higher ground. So Marlon went to move the car. I rolled up the rug in the screen room. We both thought we were gonna move a couple things and go back to bed, but the situation was rapidly deteriorating. So Marlon came back in a couple minutes later. He said, I think I should move the lawnmowers too. And so while he went to do that, I, I rolled up the dining room rug and I stuck it in the bunk bed and I was halfway through rolling up the living room rug when the first lick of water came spilling across the floor. And about that time, Nikolai appeared and started yowling because there was also water coming into the kitchen where he was expecting to get some breakfast. And Cassie, meanwhile, had retreated to what would be the last piece of dry floor space in the house. She was under the bed. So when Marlon came in again, I said, we gotta get the cats and get out of here. And so we both took a couple minutes to do something. I'd never thought about what to do in this situation, didn't know what to do. I grabbed my musical instruments, all but the one I forgot about, and put them in the bunk bed. Marlon grabbed a couple things. We put the cats in the carriers, opened the front door, water poured in. We were up to our ankles in water as we made our exit. And so where do you go at six o'clock Saturday morning with two cats? Uh, <laughs> my mom lived in the next town, so we went over there and Amazingly, she didn't even get any water in her basement that time. So we just sat there in a daze waiting for the rain to stop. 
Meanwhile, many of our neighbors had awakened to find water in their houses and their cars swamped in their driveways. They couldn't even get out. They had to be rescued by the fire department who came with rubber rafts to get people and their pets. Um, the people who lived next door to us couldn't get to their cat carrier because it was completely submerged in the lower level of their house, so they had to wrap the cat in a towel for the raft ride. And we were really grateful to Cassie for getting us up and out of there in time so it didn't come to that. So the rain finally stopped later that morning at about noon, Marlon and I went over, uh, parked in Wally's driveway and to assess the damage and we could see that the water was up to the flower boxes uh, and up by our picture windows. And uh, Marlon had to put on hip waders to go in there was about two and a half feet of water through the, throughout our house. Um, I didn't get until the next day when the water miraculously receded, but it had left a very strange scene because as it moved through the house, it moved things around. So the books from the bedroom were scattered all over the bathroom, and the pots and pans from the kitchen cupboards had flowed out into the dining room. So we spent the next several days hauling our wrecked belongings out to the dumpster. Um, we had a lot of books. And of course, the big books, coffee table books, all out on the lowest shelves, really heavy when wet. And, and mattresses are really heavy when wet. <laughs> and then when we went to empty our dressers, we discovered that the drawers wouldn't open because the wood had swollen. So we ended up prying some of our furniture apart with the crowbar. Um, and then by then, the heat had come back, and the biting flies had descended on our disaster area. And even after we got all our belongings out of the house, we still had to go back in and tear out all the wet drywall and insulation. So it was an awful week. But every night, we got to go back to my mom's house and have a nice dinner. We got to sleep with our cats. And I realized that it wasn't that bad. We were OK. We had a place to stay. We hadn't lost our pets. And all that stuff we were throwing in the dumpster was just stuff. And then about three years later, I got a job in Juneau, so we're looking at a big move. And being that we lived in an area with really good resale shops, we'd already accumulated a bunch of new stuff. <laughs> so we were going to have to discard some things. And I realized then that the flood had been really good practice. <laughs> so getting rid of things in order to move to Alaska was easy that time, because I got to decide what I wanted to keep. Thanks for listening. Our next speaker is Kylan Macker. After years of searching, Kylan is happy to have found her home in Juneau. She is new to words, but long familiar with feelings. Kylan is glad to have an opportunity to talk about the elephant in the room. A scene plays in my mind over and over. Leaves shake silently against a gray blue sky in blurred focus. As the wide angle narrows in, Moving closer to the ground, the silhouette of a person appears. Surrounded by piles of debris, where streets should be. Ordinary home appliances leer from unusual places. Microwaves and windshields. Washing machines perched precariously on the edges of crumbling buildings. We've seen a lot of this lately. Hurricanes Harvey, Irma, and Maria have created ruins out of towns. 
Unfortunately, when the winds and the rain subside, we ask, what now? What's next? How will we recover? We assess the damage. We identify what has happened and what that means for moving forward. Unfortunately, there's a storm happening all around us that doesn't get the same attention. Often victims of the storm are made to believe that it either didn't happen, that it was their fault, or that they could be injured, either physically, financially, or socially, in order to report it or even talk about it. At age 20, I was raped. I was stalked for a year and raped again. What's most frightening about this is that it wasn't done by some deranged lunatic. No, this was my partner. We were both students at Brigham Young University. We both volunteered for the pre-med society, avid rock climbers, both indoors and out, camp counselors, classroom teachers, we were genuinely nice and lovely people. We had friends, great friends that we mutually shared. In response to something life-threatening or terrifying, the human reacts in two ways, one of two ways, fight or flight. So naturally, I ran. Confused about what had just happened, I convinced myself that it was my fault. Maybe my no wasn't loud enough. Maybe if I fought a little harder, this was a person I trusted. I told myself that I wasn't going to allow this to dictate my life, unable to see clearly that it already did. I disassociated myself from it, and it would take me three years before I could admit out loud that I had been raped, and only when confronted by my father, a behavioral and mental health professional for almost 30 years, I ran. Almost overnight, I packed up all my things and I moved to the next state where my mother's ex-husband was. It was the closest thing I knew to family and I thought it would be safe. It wasn't. It turns out he was my mother's ex-husband because he was a very ill sexual predator. Without a vehicle, I relied heavily on public transportation. I would ride the train to work as an optician for lens crafters in downtown Salt Lake City, Utah. After my train ride home, I still felt unsafe where I was staying. So I took a job overnight throwing freight for a local Walmart grocer. When I finally saved enough money for a cheap and probably unsafe vehicle, I lived in it until I could find a place to rent. Unaware of myself, because I hadn't been presented with a safe place to confront what had happened, I continued running. I had moved 
over eight times in two years between three different states. Someone told me that my personality was marketable, so I easily found work wherever I went. And I went, and I went, and I ran. When I finally did start to try to process what had happened, it was often met with skepticism, questions, trying to understand what I had done in order for it to happen. The friends that we mutually shared, I distanced myself from because I didn't want to defame anybody's character. <laughs> when I was finally able to admit out loud what had happened, I was fortunate to speak to a woman who regularly dealt with sexual assault. And she vocalized what had been so difficult for me the whole time. She said that it's difficult to recover when people only see you as a victim. She says, but then you get to be a survivor. And that was pretty empowering for a while. It wasn't until I moved to Juneau that I really began to heal. Juneau doesn't have any roads, just the one. The only way in or out is by boat or plane. There were times I really wanted to run but it was a little more difficult here. I was determined to recover. I was determined to identify where and how this impacted my life. And I attempted to excise those things from me. Do you know what a billable hour of talk therapy is? It's on average like $115 to $250. If you don't have insurance, good luck. I'm a verbal processor, so a lot of times I don't come to my conclusions until I conclusions until I get to talk them out. I couldn't even figure out up from down sometimes. I'm really fortunate to be in Juno, where people are so willing to listen. Here's all of you people here. It wasn't until I found friends that didn't minimize me or my feelings that would listen, that I was able to, to grow. So we go from victim to survivor. And what's next? Leaves shake against a gray blue sky. The silhouette of a person appears. That person is me. What's next? How do we recover? Kylan, we look forward to hearing you a year from now on your new adventures of recovery and strength and turning into that powerful woman that you are. Um. It is always amazing at Mudrooms the stories of bravery that people tell. Um, you know, and many times our stories are lighthearted and some people think that that's what mudrooms should be. But what I always say is, every time I go, there's something that lingers with me that makes me laugh, something that makes me cry, and something that makes me wonder about the future. Um, and so thank you for sharing that very intimate story with neighbors and friends, because clearly you're the kind of powerful woman that Alaska thrives on. Our final speaker this evening is Erica Berggren. Erica was born in Anchorage, but left at age two with her family and lived abroad until she was 18. She grew up in the Netherlands and Oman. 
She's lived a few major cities in the U.S. since moving back, but the collaborative art community of Juno, Juno really drew her in. Since she arrived in Juno, she's put a lot of energy into poetry, performance, and visual art. Please welcome Erica to the stage. When I was living in Oman, I was um, 12 years old when the tropical storm Ganu reached the shores, and it was the strongest tropical storm to have ever reached the, the Arabian Peninsula. It's normally very uh, secluded. So it works pretty well at deterring storms. And at the time, I was just a kid, so I thought like, oh, a rainstorm, this is going to be wonderful. And in the desert, a rainstorm is like a celebration. There's nothing quite like it. Every, all the kids like run out, and they have a great time. They dance in the rain. Um, yeah, it's, it's, really, it's really incredible. So I was expecting that. Um, and we had some friends come up with us. Um, we were living on top of a hill. So we had some friends who were living in a valley come stay with us while, the, while it was storming because we didn't know whether it was going to flood. It often uh, flash floods in Oman. And um, when I realized that it was pretty serious was afterwards. Oman doesn't have the infrastructure to deal with a tropical storm because it doesn't have tropical storms very often. Um, and the result was a lot of carnage. Um, so me personally, I was did a lot of horseback riding. So I went to the stable the next week and all the horses had died. They just had tried to swim over their stall doors and broken their legs and drowned. Um, so we brought shovels and buckets and it was just mud strewn across everything. Um, it was like trying to unearth a dinosaur from tar or like not even a, a dinosaur, like a loved pet. It was like, yeah. It was like trying to unearth something you loved from just mud. Um, and one of the stories from that storm that stuck with me the most was um, my, one of my mother's really good friends had, went, had gone to a mall to try to save pet shop animals that were there. And she opened the doors and inside, there were just bodies of people who had come over from Oman, from Sri Lanka. That's where people usually immigrate from. Um, and they had been sleeping in the basement, couldn't swim, and drowned. And um, so me being a 12-year-old who watched the news a lot, I thought, this is really big news. This, like, as far as I know, I've heard of hundreds of people dying personally. I'm sure that I'm not, that people are sheltering me, and I'm sure that there are so many more. Um, so I watched the news, and there was only one station that even covered it because no one cares about storms that happen in the Middle East. They only care about conflict. So there was only one station that covered it, 
And when they mentioned it, they said, Tropical Storm Ganu made landfall a couple days ago. No deaths are reported, and moved on. And that broke me. I, like, my heart sank. And I just remember my paradigm shifting, because until that point, I was like, everything that I hear from this is real. Um, and here's the thing. At age 12, my takeaway from that was only trust primary sources. Um, <laughs> that was what I'd been taught in school. Uh, and like, I, I, had, I had a hard time trusting things after that. I just remember like driving in a school bus back to school and looking at these like gnarled, curled up pretzel um, like street lights. And I was like, why is no one seeing this? This is an insane thing happening around us. Um, and I think that at age 12, I thought only trust primary sources. When the Arab Spring happened a few years later, I wasn't there anymore, so I reached out to friends who I knew who were back there. Um, and they kind of told me their side of things and what was happening. And what I realized as I grew older was that social media plays a really big part in, um, in news coverage. And now that people are self-reporting, that's not as big of an issue. And today, um, in this day and age, I think that fake news is a term that's used very divisively um, to scare people. And as someone who has seen things not covered that I would have wanted them to, that I would have wanted to be, my only advice is corroborate your sources. Like just make sure that whatever story you're hearing is a real thing that's happening to people and that is being reported on different platforms, um, because it will be. And that's really like the biggest thing for me. Um, I am a big believer that people will tell the truth if you give them a chance. So just listen. Thanks. You're listening to KTOO News Juno 104.3 FM. The stories you just heard were recorded live at Mudrooms on October 10th, 2017. The theme for the evening was After the Storm. To tell your story or to find out about the next live event, visit mudrooms.org. Audio production by Alita Bus. Additional help from Sarah Hannon, Melissa Griffiths, Rich Moniak, Tom Cosgrove, Pat Roach, and Steve Suing. Music by Julie Copens. I'm Alita Bus. Have a good night.